0: What does it mean for you to be successful? What would have to happen in your life for you to say, yeah, this is a successful life? Whether we realize it or not, the last two weeks as well as this week, as we've been preaching through Thessalonians, what we're actually learning from the Apostle Paul and by the Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of this letter is what it means to live a successful life. The first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 4 are explaining what a life that pleases God looks like. It's explaining what does this life look like that puts a smile on the face of God, that is a success in the eyes of God. And this morning, we're going to focus on the last two verses, because it's kind of a, like a one, two, three punch combination from Paul. He finishes with a flurry of, of commands, of apostolic commands, saying this is, This is what it looks like to live a successful life in the eyes of God. To live a life that pleases God. And this is the idea that I think Paul is trying to get us to come to. The idea that I want us to get our minds and our hearts wrapped around this morning is that success is simple. It's not grand. It's not overwhelming. No matter what the world is convincing us of, success is simple. And that's what we're going to see this morning from this text. So let's look at this again. Um, And just before I read it, I'd like to remind you about what the prophet Isaiah says about our Bible. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. What that means is everything in the physical world that you can see and you can touch, it's going to wither, rot, and die. But when we come to the word of God, we're in touch with something far more eternal ...and life-giving and powerful... ...than anything else in this world... ...we'd be really wise to pay attention. We're going to read from the second half of verse 10... ...through the end of verse 12. It says, but we urge you, brothers... ...to do this more and more. He's referring to the brotherly love... ...that Matt preached about last week. Do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly... To mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul here is finishing. He's finishing with a flurry of what does it mean to live a successful life. And the first thing that he says is aspire to, aspire to live quietly. What Paul does here is really interesting. He takes two verbs that you would never put together, and he brings them together. The first, this verb, to aspire to, it means with all of your might, with all of your energy, with everything that you're aiming at. It's as if, I mean, when, when you read this word, it's kind of this notion of like a, an Olympic athlete training for the upcoming event. Everything that I have has been focused in on this. I am aspiring towards something. So that's, that's that first verb. The second one is to rest, to be quiet, to be silent. And Paul, very uniquely, brings these two verbs together. He says, strain with all your might. Make it your ambition that you might live quietly. It's really interesting. He does it, I think, inspired by the Holy Spirit to to really communicate a very powerful point. He, as a pastor, is writing to Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians, as we have learned through this series, are under serious persecution. They are a young, faithful church that is being persecuted for loving Jesus. In an idolatrous, pagan society, they are being killed for what they believe. And so Paul, out of practical pastoral concern to his people, is saying, aim to live quietly. Just because he, he cares about their, them being persecuted, he's saying, aim to live quietly, But I think even more so than that, even more so than Paul saying, look to fly under the radar when possible. You know, I think it's, first of all, it's interesting that Paul would be the one to communicate that message. Because what happened when Paul went from city to city to city? Well, there was rioting and they beat him and they put him in prison. It wasn't exactly a a quiet life. So it's interesting that he says, aspire to a quiet life. Before we really talk about what that means, I want to say this, that Paul obviously is saying... Where you can hold strongly to truth and live a quiet life, do so. Because Paul's life has been far from quiet, but that's because he holds tightly to the gospel truth. And that is what is causing the heartache for Paul. So in essence, what he's saying is, where you can hold tightly to truth and you can live quietly, let those two things happen together, because that is a beautiful combination. And the question that I think even more so for us and the Thessalonians this morning that I want to pose is, what do you, what do you aspire to? Paul uses this, this word and he says, your aim, your desire, your drive, what is it towards this morning? He was charging the Thessalonians and he's charging us to let it be towards living a quiet and a simple life. Now, the truth is that flies in the face of everything we hear in our world. We are told that to be great or to be successful, the thing to be aimed at is to have your name in lights. To be on the front page of the newspaper. To be the wealthiest and the most influential. But isn't it interesting that Paul, writing to the church, says aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. Do you realize that this is actually a theme throughout the Bible? That when Jesus goes searching for the 12 men that will turn the world upside down, he doesn't look among the royal palaces, the kings and the princes. He looks for faithful fishermen. And when he wants to talk about generosity, he doesn't look to the billionaire writing the big check. He looks to the widow with her might. The truth is, we have been called to aspire to live quietly, to live humble lives, honoring to God in the little things. To be okay with being anonymous. That in fact, that is part of the way that God has designed a, a successful life in his eyes. Success is simple. It's not grand and overwhelming. Now, does that mean that you're wrong if your name ends up on the front of the newspaper? No. No, not necessarily. But is that your aim? Is that your aim? When Paul comes to this final flurry of what it means to live a successful life in the eyes of God... ...he says, aspire to be anonymous, to be quiet, to live at peace. That is the first thing in understanding what it means to live this successful life in the eyes of God. Aspiring to live quietly. I tend to believe that when we're ushered into the kingdom of God on that final day... ...and the fullness of it when Jesus comes in power the people who are welcomed most enthusiastically and rewarded most greatly are people whose names you and I have never heard. It's going to be the really simple, faithful, quiet, successful people in the eyes of God. Success is simple. And the first way we see that is that Paul says, aspire to live quietly. Make it your aim and your drive to live simply. The second thing that we see in this passage in verse 11, the second, the second phrase, he says, and to mind your own affairs. To mind your own affairs. He's basically saying, mind your business. I love this. Paul says, he says, aspire to live quietly. And he says, and mind your business. In that is, is kind of both a positive and a negative command. He, remi- remi- let me remind you, what we've got here is an apostle urging us towards something. And he urges us, he says, let me urge you to mind your business. The positive side of that is this, each and every one of you has a sphere of influence. And it is unique to you. No one else has the sphere of influence that you have, or you have, or you have. It's true of each one of us. You were born to a certain family with a certain set of parents and siblings. You have a certain group of friends, a job that you go to. You sit in a certain classroom with people on each side of you. You have a slice of life that is yours and no one else's. And as Paul is describing what a successful life looks like, he says, be responsible over your slice. It's yours and no one else's. God has sovereignly placed you right where you are. It is not an accident. And the command of Paul as he's explaining what a successful life looks like is mind your business, your stuff. It's it's your slice of life. And so the question for us that, that automatically we must ask of our lives, that I have been asking of my life all week is this. Am I responsible for my sphere? Are there things slipping through the cracks? Simple questions that can serve as a litmus test of sorts for our heart on this issue are things like this. Are you responsible? Are you trustworthy? Are you a man or woman of your word? This is what I I call FedEx Christians. I'm I'm blown away by FedEx. I mean, I can swing by FedEx this afternoon and say, can you have this in Cambodia tomorrow? And they'll be like, sure, 10 a.m., you know? And if FedEx says it, it's going to happen. And so I I always think, FedEx Christians, that are we that way? If I say that's going to happen, it will happen because I am responsible, dependable, trustworthy. Because I am faithful over the sphere that I've been given. Those of you who have maybe aging parents, the question would be for your sphere of influence, when was the last time you called them? Are you caring for them and loving them? Do you make time for your kids? Do you turn off the television and turn your face towards them and listen to them when they're dealing with something? These are the simple things of life that equal success. God calling a people to mind their business. Don't let the stuff of your life slip through the cracks. Do you show up to to work on time? Do you pay your bills on time? Are you a responsible individual who's taking care of the space that God has sovereignly given you? We have been given a unique slice of life that we are responsible for. We, as God's people, are called to live up to that very responsibility. But embedded in that same command is actually a negative side as well. Oftentimes, when you're not minding your business, it means you're minding somebody else's. Uh, and actually, Paul comes back to explain this in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. He actually talks about several of the same themes that we get in this passage. It's as if he penned the first letter, sent it to the church, and they didn't quite get it. And so he wrote a second letter to clear some things up. And so we actually get more information about what he wrote in the first letter when we see him talking about the very same topic in his second letter. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and in verse 11, he says this, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Do you see that he's actually expanding on the theme that he wrote in First Thessalonians, saying, mind your business, take care of your slice of life. And then as if it wasn't totally clear to the Thessalonians, he writes them again and he says, some of you aren't busy at work taking care of your business. In fact, you're busybodies." He uses this play on words to say, you're beginning to meddle in other people's stuff rather than just taking care of your own sphere of, of responsibility. And the truth is that, that we as a people are called, we are called to take care of what's right in front of us and stop meddling and continuing to correct and fix Stuff in someone else's life that's really not ours to deal with. Now certainly, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we at time are time called to rebuke one another. We are called to call one another out. But the last thing we are called is to be gossips, busybodies, constantly meddling in other people's stuff that's not ours to be dealt with. A word to the, to the seminarians in the group, and I'm speaking as one of them, we are the absolute worst. We are the worst at this. And for those of you who don't know, I mean, seminarians, our, our favorite pastime is to, to sit at the lunch tables and to just tear apart every ministry around the country. We talk about why they're doing it wrong, why their preaching they wrong. Why they're... The truth is, we all, seminarians, whatever your job, whatever your call, whatever your sphere of life, we are called to take care of what's right in front of us, to be faithful with that. Ashley actually had incredible wisdom for me. There was one particular well-known national pastor whose name would come up a lot in conversation. And I had a little spiel about this guy. You know, and I thought it sounded pretty good, uh, pretty godly. And so every time his name would come up, I'd be like, well, you know, have you ever thought about this or this? And, you know, he's really not doing this very well, and this is pretty dangerous. And and people would be like, yeah, that's interesting. And I'd come away feeling really great about myself. And uh, probably about the sixth or eighth time that Ashley had heard my spiel, uh, The person went away probably thinking, yeah, he's got some great insight. And Ashley said, what what purpose does that serve? I was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think I look pretty good. Um, And she said, you know, I think it would go a lot further if we prayed for him rather than just talking about him. That's tremendous wisdom from my wife that I needed to hear. In essence, she was saying like, Paul, mind your business. Mind your business. Take care of the sphere that God has placed you in. Be really, really faithful in that place. And stop worrying about what everybody else is doing. That's a necessary component to a successful life in the eyes of God. A life that pleases God. And you see, that's actually directly connected to the first. If we don't believe, if we don't aim at living a simple life... If we don't aim at living a quiet life, what in essence we want to be is grand and glorious. We want our name in lights. And then it becomes a lot harder for us just to take care of the really simple, small things in our sphere. We think we are built for a bigger and more important sphere. A a bigger slice of influence. Because if I'm going to be successful, I need to mind all this other business. When in actuality God says, aspire to live quietly and just take care of what's right in front of you. That I've given you to be faithful with right now. So those are the first two urgings of Paul. The third is one that I've had to work through this week. It's a little bit confusing. He says, let's let's read verse 11 again. He says, aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. To work with your hands. I am a seminary student and I study 10 hours a day. How am I supposed to read this? Work with your hands. You know, I I am the most inept Mr. Fix-It there is. And so as I was reading this, I was asking my question, is Joey or Glenn Cruz, are they the faithful in the bunch because they work with their hands all day and the rest of us are on the outside looking in? Is, is, Is that the issue? And I'd like to make an argument that I don't think that's what Paul is saying. It's not what he's saying. And the way that we can see this really clearly is by looking at the context of what's going on even in what he's writing in Thessalonians, as well as what's going on among those people. First of all, among these people, what is going on is this. The Thessalonians church was a a wealthy church. Most scholars agree that because of the way, even in the previous two verses that we read, in verse 9 and 10, it says that all the brothers in all of Macedonia know about your love. And in and, and other places, we understand that Thessalonica is a, an important trade city. And that as believers are being converted, that this is actually a church of, of substantial worth. That because of their generosity and because of their wealth, they're known all over the region for standing for Jesus, for being generous. Simultaneously, what you've got in this early church is an understanding that if there's somebody in need in the midst of the church, you take care of their need. But... There were some in the Thessalonian church that saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of the system. What we have is a wealthy and a generous church who is committed to taking care of those in need. Well, dang, I'll quit working and I'll let them take care of me. That was the notion in Thessalonica at the time. People were beginning to be sponges off of the community, living off of the generosity and the wealth of the Thessalonian church. And so, as Paul is writing to these people and trying to lay out a life that is pleasing to God, what does it look like to be successful? This final urge is work with your hands. But in essence, what he's saying is work diligently. You've got to work hard. And we see this real clearly if you look further down in First Thessalonians, 5, excuse me, five verse fourteen. He cut, he loops back around to this idea and he says, "We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle." The lazy, the ones that are just sitting around. He goes back in 2 Thessalonians 3, this parallel passage that we've already noted in verses 6, 7, and 11. We're going to see the same theme become really clear. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Skipping down to verse 11, one we've already heard. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. The argument that Paul is making is not primarily about working with our hands. It's about not being idle. It's about working hard. As simply as I can state it, let me say it like this. As individual followers of Jesus and as a community, we should never leave the door open to have the indictment of laziness leveled against us. Ever. We are called to be a hard-working, diligent people. And the reason is not just so we can say, look at how hard I work. The truth actually becomes much grander and more beautiful when we look at some of Paul's other letters. In Colossians three twenty three, Paul says, Do your work as unto the Lord and not as unto man. What Paul is saying, in essence, is this. That every day when you go to work to do whatever it is that you have been called to do, your sphere of influence, your slice of life, your job, your studies, what you've been called to do, When you're teaching, when you're balancing the budget, when you're sitting in front of the computer, when you're studying your books, that is an act of worship. We actually, in every inch of every square place of our lives, everywhere we go, that is an opportunity to worship the living God. Do you see that there is no division between sacred and secular in this truth? No division between sacred and secular. What I mean by that is there's nothing that's this world, that's just the stuff of this life, and that someday there's going to be something sacred. But right now, this is just the stuff of life, of eating turkey and hanging out with family and going to work. But when I pray and read the Bible and go to church, that's sacred, but this stuff's secular. This this notion is actually very prominent in the Caribbean. I studied Caribbean religions while I was in college, and it was very interesting to learn that these, these people who ancestral pagan worship that they have such this strong divide between the sacred and the secular that when someone who is a practitioner of this faith goes to use the restroom when they get to the threshold of the restroom they step in like this denoting that I am leaving my deity right here so that I can take care of very earthly gritty stuff and then when I leave the bathroom after taking care of my business I step back out I pick up my God and I go on with life you see the divide between the sacred and the secular? And I think oftentimes we, as Christians, live life like that's the case. Don't we? We think that so much of our life is just about this world, about our stuff, my job, and my taking a load off at the end of the day and watching the news or standing in line at the grocery store. That that's stuff of this world, but later when I pray, that will be sacred The truth is, the incarnation of Jesus Christ detonated any divide between sacred and secular that we can set up. The God of the universe took on flesh as a little baby. And then he walked this earth. And in fact, he spent 30 years as a carpenter. Aspiring towards a quiet life. Minding his business. Working with his hands. Imagine that. That Jesus, our grand model for a successful life, lived simply and beautifully in such a way that now, all of a sudden, our whole life is worship. Do you see this? That Jesus, because of his perfect life and then eventually his death and his resurrection, that we can rest wholly on him knowing that we have been given everything. In the blood of Jesus, by your faith in what He did on the cross, you have been given everything. there 's nothing you have to attain or prove to anyone because of the God of the universe looks at you and says, "Justified, right in my sight." No longer do we have to define success by this big, grand picture of i 've got to attain and i 've got to prop myself up, prop myself up. Everything has already been given. And even more so than that, the very presence of God has been given to you. Jesus didn't just come in flesh and walk on the planet. But after he left, he sent his Holy Spirit to live in believers. I don't even know what God living inside of us. That is unbelievable unbelievable. No divide between sacred and secular anymore because when you wake up and you get out of bed and you go to work or school or anywhere else, you are a carrier of the divine. The spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Nothing you will ever do again should be viewed as secular, earthly. This stuff. It is all sanctified and beautiful and God-honoring. Our whole life becomes worship. That is the image, the beautiful picture that Paul is painting of a successful life. Success is is simple it's not grand, it's not glorious, it's not your name and lights. What it is, aspiring to live a quiet and a humble life, humility, to be faithful with the sphere that you've been given. And to work hard. And this beautiful final verse. This is the successful life. What is the result of a life like that? What is the result? In verse 12, Paul gives us two of them. Verse 12 reads, So that, so that. I just want to, when you read your Bible on your own, pay really close attention to the little words The connecting words, it's it's a great tool in the way that you study your Bible on your own. When you read for, or because, or therefore, or so that, or and, you're seeing the way that ideas are connected. And so right here, when Paul says, so that, we know that this is a result of what he's just told us. Do these things so that this will happen. Just helps you understand more of what's going on between verse to verse. Verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders... And be dependent on no one. So you may walk properly before outsiders. That's the first result of this successful life. And in essence what Paul is saying is this. You will walk properly, truthfully, honestly before an onlooking world. You're going to garner the respect of your neighbors. That's what Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians towards. People are just hurling all of these insults and claims about the Thessalonian church there in Thessalonica. And he's saying, if you live this simple, faithful, hardworking life, you're going to earn their respect. So much so that if they continue to hurl insults at you, it's nothing but empty slander. That's what Peter writes to similar people being persecuted. He says, live your life in such a way that it's just empty slander if they bring it against you. The truth is that if we as a community bind together first as individuals, then as a community living this type of life, I believe that Paul's letter to the Maldonians would be very similar. He would say right there in Malden, be really, really faithful to your sphere of influence. Be faithful, hardworking and humble. And as you do as a group, you will earn the respect of those on the outside looking in. And they will say that is a compelling and a magnetic lifestyle. There's something about that that is distinctly different than everything else I see in this world, and I want to know more about it. You know, we've been called to be fishers of men, and I think we've got this broken notion of, of me going out to the end of the pier and putting my little line off the end of the pier by myself and waiting for a fish to bite. It's not the biblical notion of fishing. And you can even read about the times that they are fishing. You know what it is? It's a big stinking net, and it's like, Brett, you grab that corner, Ryan grab some, Matt grab some, and together with our determination and our grit, we're going to bring in a whole heap of fish. Fishing was a communal activity. And I think that there's, there's a notion that when Jesus says, be fishers of men, the most powerful apologetic that we have is our community. The thing that will be most compelling to an onlooking world is people living in beautiful, faithful, humble, hardworking community as a group, as we all man our side of the net, then the people from the onlooking world go, yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. As Matthew, as it says in Matthew, they will see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. They will say, that is glorious. You must serve a glorious God. It's the first result of this successful life. The second, the tail end of verse 12, the end of our passage, he says this, and that you may be dependent on no one. In 2 Thessalonians, he, de- he expands on this even more in that same parallel passage. And the literal, the literal wording that he uses is so that you can eat your own bread. You stop eating other people's food, you eat your own bread. In essence, what he's saying is this, that you can stand on your own two feet. Not that you can say, look at us, we are autonomous and we are free and we stand on our own two feet so that we might be proud. That's not the issue. How did this start? If you look back, verse 9 and 10 that Matt preached last week, brotherly love, that it might grow more and more. The first urging that Paul has given these people is that your love would expand and spread out. The way that that will be most possible is if we are a hardworking community who is taking care of our needs so that we can pour out and meet the needs of others. The charge towards being dependent on no one is so that we actually can be generous and And looking outward, if we are idle and not taking care of our own sphere of influence and we don't have any bread to eat so we're looking towards other people trying to take care of us, that destroys our ability to be reaching out and to be blessing and to be sending out. To tie back into the theme of a few weeks ago, that that destroys our thunder. Matt talked about where the lightning strikes and the thunder goes out. It is very difficult to send the sound of thunder out from the gospel striking here if we have not met our own needs. And if we are not built up to such a place that we can then be generous. And so the great result of a successful life lived before God is that the people are drawn like magnets to the truth of the gospel. Simultaneously, we have the ability to send out. Success is simple. It's simple. It's not grand. It's not your name in lights. It's being quiet, humble, faithful, and hardworking that others might be drawn in and that we might send people out. Success is simple. Let me pray for us. Lord God, yeah, you are a good God. We come together to tell you as a people this morning, that's why we are here, is to lift you high, that we might bow down low and lift you high. And like John say, let us decrease and that you might increase. That even in the simplicity of our lives, that we would be drawn back into the background and that you would step into the foreground and in an onlooking world would say, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. That is a glorious Savior that I need to know. God, we beg that our community would be like that. That we would fade away into the background living a simple life that is successful in your eyes. So that you might receive great glory right here in our neighborhood and in our city. We beg that of you. We cannot do it without the power of your Spirit. So come and fill us in a new and a powerful way, even this morning. We beg it. We beg it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.